Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. I hope you're all well. I hope you are in a very moral frame of mood because I hope I'm going to upset you, even outrage you. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a great show with this wonderful academic. I really enjoyed it. A guy called Deverian Baldwin, uh, who teaches at Trinity College uh, in Connecticut. Uh, and it's a book about how the universities are plundering our cities. It's an anti-university book, but in terms of public space and the destruction of um, a, a public sense of being in our cities. Um, Today, we're broadening this. Rather than, uh, rather than the universities plundering our cities, we are suggesting, or at least my guest on the show today, is taking Baldwin's idea and suggesting that uh, the universities are plundering our minds. Uh, this is a familiar theme, of course, with American writers on, 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 on higher education. Uh, but my guest today, I think, has an unusual take on what's happening in the American university. We've had a number of shows recently about uh, so-called wokeness. We had Sarah Kamali on the show last week. I don't know if we talked, we used the word woke, but she's certainly in that camp. I don't think she would deny it. We've also had critics of, of, of wokeness like Brett Stevens, uh, the notorious, outrageous New York Times columnist. And we've had people like my old friend Yasha Monk, who seems to be caught between the anti-woke and the pro-woke community. I'm not sure if Yasha quite knows what he is. We've also had a number of shows recently uh, about the meritocracy, the American meritocracy, uh, and its crisis, its problems. We had the very distinguished uh, Harvard philosopher from Harvard Law School, Michael Sandel, and just to balance things up. Since we're doing Harvard, we had to do Yale as well. We had the, uh, the the legal theorist from Yale Law School, Daniel Markovitz, blaming meritocracy for our miserableness. But we haven't had anyone on the show bringing together wokeness and the meritocracy until today. Uh, my guest on the show has a really intriguing new piece in one of my favorite online publications, Tablet. It's called The Woke Meritocracy, and it's by a, a young historian who teaches at the University of Chicago. So I'm not sure if he's woke, but he's certainly part of this new meritocracy. Um, Blake, that was a long introduction. Yeah, thank you, you are bringing together this issue of wokeness and the meritocracy, which most people think aren't in any way connected. So, so what's going on here? How has wokeness and our meritocracy become entangled? And why is this a big problem? Yeah, so as you say, it would, it would certainly seem like these things are in opposition to each other if we're concerned about um, pursuing social justice through the university, at the university, and particularly if we're concerned about thinking about social justice in kind of identitarian terms rather than universalist terms uh, that would seem to be in contradiction with the universalist and individualist logic of meritocracy where everyone's abilities can be quantified and ranked 
and then we're going to give certain rewards to the highest performing people, right? And especially in terms of admissions, it seems like these two logics are in contradiction because if we're concerned about having only the highest performing individuals getting into universities, that seems totally in, in contradiction to some logic where we're thinking, well, we want universities to uh, make sure that they have representative portions of different, you know, racial, ethnic, whatever kind of groups. Not, not just white people, not privileged white people, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, in Tablet itself, for the past couple of years, there have been uh, all kinds of pieces um, for and against um, social justice, identitarian-oriented admissions, uh, defenses of meritocracy, um, all of this kind of thing. And, and we actually had Michael Lind on the show recently, um, who has an unusual critique, I think, of uh, 21st century American, I don't know whether you call it post-capitalism or uh, post-industrial capitalism in terms of class struggle. So, yeah. So so I think we're familiar. Uh, Blake, before we get into this connection between wokeness and the meritocracy, perhaps you might define it. Of course, um, you take it for granted. Many people will take it for granted. I went to Wikipedia, which I always do when I'm not sure what something means. I found this photograph and I found uh, uh, a definition that says it's a term that refers to awareness of issues that concern social justice and racial justice. How would you define woke? Yeah, so indeed, I, I would hate to define it uh, for anyone else for any purposes beyond this present discussion. Well, I want you to be outrageous, Blake. Don't be too PC with me. You can say anything you want. I don't care. Um, but, you know, what I was thinking of here is, right, so all of these efforts by which we might try to address um, social inequalities by using explicitly identitarian categories, right? So if, if an older mode of social justice is saying we should uh, transcend thinking about racial and ethnic difference, um, we should you know, have a kind of like colorblind policies, but also really a colorblind way of talking about other people and experiencing the world. Like the, the ideal is a post-racial society and the practice is ignoring race. Uh, the new kind of woke framework, um, you know, I'm not entirely sure what the end goal is, but the sense that the way to get wherever we should be getting is by being more and more aware of um, race, ethnicity, so, so, so the, 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 woke, um, the woke version of the world is everything is, everything is defined by our cultural identity. Is that fair? Yeah, and I think, you know, I'm not entirely clear what they're imagining. And there's no, and to be fair to the woke community, and for, the, for that matter, to the critics of wokeness, there is no formal woke party. I mean, people are making this up as they go along. And it's a term that was originally um, invented, I think, within the African-American community. But now it's become a vehicle above all else of the right. Yeah, so it's, it's you know, unfortunate that one has to give a label to something that is amorphous and coming from a lot of different people and, you know, meaning different things to a lot of different groups. Um, you know, Wesley Yang, who's also writing for Tablet, talks about, like, the successor ideology, which I think has the virtue of signaling how vague it is, right? Like we, we don't know exactly what, it's, what is it that holds all of these different groups and positions together. 
But the um, important thing is that it's important. The important thing is we're not talking about some obscure academic theory of, uh, of some uh, deluded French theorist. This is real and it's having an impact on our university and on our society. Right, and indeed, were it some obscure theory, then we could go to some particular text and define um, the, the points in it from this you know, objective artifact out there in the world. Because it's real and because so many different actors are drawing on it, um, it's always kind of shifting around and it doesn't mean quite the same thing. You know, when, when Bank of America or Nike does kind of woke racial justice signaling, well, that doesn't really mean quite the same as when some BLM activist is doing it, right? Even though the talking points might be quite similar. So uh, you have this great headline and uh, generations of immigrants have taught their children that their intellectual acumen won't get them far unless they can also mimic the ideal personality of the American elite. And what you seem to be doing in your piece, it's almost a, a, I guess, a a Gramscian analysis, is suggesting that uh, your eyes got big then, uh, that there's a new kind of ideology being developed in the American university, combining wokeness with eliteness. Is that fair? Yeah, I think indeed. um, One of the things that's been... um, really surprising and disorienting about the last five or 10 years is, you know, to, yeah, to be Gramscian, the, the hegemony that this way of talking has secured in universities, corporations, even the military. Um, but as it's secured this kind of hegemony, um, you know, I think it's also been almost entirely or to a great extent co-opted by elites who are using it to reinforce their class hegemony. Um, so, you know, I think... Knowingly is, or unknowingly, Blake, is this uh, false conscious Marxism or fully conscious Marxism? Yeah, so I think the the mistake, I mean, there are a lot of people on the right who want to say, and even, even on a more uh, Marxist left, who want to say that this kind of divisive identity politics is an instrument of... Um, you know, the bourgeoisie of the upper class. Um, I think I think it's a mistake to see it in those terms as like a deliberate strategy. Um, I think you know if you zoom out, it, it can be seen as working that way, right? Because I think legitimately it makes it a lot harder to have um, a cohesive working class politics. It makes it harder to um, advance the material interest of working class people across uh, racial, ethnic, whatever kind of um, divisions, um, you know, it gets us thinking about how do we get more people like us into Harvard or the New York Times newsroom instead of how do we get more economic equality in the country as a whole. Um, But, you know, I I don't think that 10 years ago, a bunch of rich people got together and decided, uh, you know, how can we draw on elements of postmodern theory or, you know, corners of critical studies in the academy? How can we promote those ideas? to advance your economic interest. Uh, there was a headline today in CNN, Blake, which made me thought of you. Um, it's a story about a kid who just got into Stanford, not that that's a particularly good university, one down the road from me. Um, he got in, and I assume he was good in other ways too. He had good scores. But he wrote Black Lives Matter on his application 100 times. That was the entire application. It was a kind of performance art. And I think what you're suggesting is that higher education in bringing together this new meritocracy and wokeness has become 
a kind of theater performance. It's it's lost its intellectualism and it's simply it's simply obsessed with how we appear. Is that fair? Well, so I, yeah, I would say two things. Like as, as far as I recall, I think I think that kid's father is like a hedge fund manager for you know. Surprise, uh, surprise, right? So it's probably not- South Asian or. Uh, he's obviously not white, but it, it's not clear how he's oppressed. Yeah, so so I think one this performance of uh, interest in identitarian racial justice—it's um, not any particular person in the country who could use such a performance to secure entry into Stanford, right? It's someone already from the class of people that Stanford is most interested in, in drawing from. Um, and Stanford is a, a particularly um, intellectually homogeneous place. I think Stanford epitomizes the the post political nature of of the American elite. Is that fair? Yes, I mean I I, I I'm less familiar with my. my so you're allowed on on my show, Blake. You're allowed to be particularly critical of Stanford since uh, uh, I'm a Berkeley person. Um, yeah, so I mean I think you know that's a place that is has you know, long been interested in. Um, promoting the next generation of our capitalist elite, right? So uh, it's maybe particularly useful for these people to have a kind of social justice um, Tina or, uh, you know, veneer for that. As for performance, like, I, you know, I'm in a way against education or the university setting as a space of inciting students to do certain kinds of performances. Uh, I mean, I think part of what the university exists to do is to uh, offer a model of the intellectual life, offer a model of character, and incite students to be interested in pursuing this kind of a model and for the rest of their lives, right? Mm. So there's always an element of pretentiousness and affectation and playing around with different kinds of selves that that goes into being a person at that age and goes into the college experience. Um, but I think the question is like, what are the models that are culturally available yeah, and to be to, to be fair blake in defense of the university these kids come packaged already up in this nonsense I, I know with my own kids um they went to my son went to a private school a very fancy private school my daughter didn't but she went to a, a public waldorf school which in a sense is an, a, another kind of privilege and their entire education, particularly when it comes to history, I know you're a professor of history or you're in the history department at Chicago, their entire education in history is a moral one. It's, it's, it's a narrative of emancipation of women, of people of color, of people of different sexualities. So history is being taught purely in this emancipationary way. They're not, they don't do classes on the causes of the First World War. Yeah, in, indeed. So... You know, most of my students come from elite private schools, um, like private secondary schools, and so have already very much had their consciousnesses shaped by this sort of discourse. Um, and then it, you know, it ends up being a problem in the classroom. I don't care what people's political ideologies are, but it's a problem in the sense that they have gotten the impression that for all of these topics, there is a definitive right line that you have to hold on to. It's a multiple, yeah, it's a multiple, uh, life is a multiple, they've been taught that life is a multiple choice game. They've got to where they're at because of multiple choice. So they see outcomes in multiple choice terms. Is that fair? Well, and the, I think they're, they're correct in a sense to think that the stakes of having the wrong answer 
So both, you know, both not doing perfectly on, you know, their, their test and not having the right kind of narrative about themselves and the right kind of views about sensitive political topics. The stakes are really high because there's more and more competition for um, the sort of positions that will allow them access to what they think of as the right kind of life. Yeah, right? you say, and, and you put it very nicely, I thought you said... Uh... The, the, the whole student worldview, it's a kind of ontology. I'm quoting a, a, a paragraph of, of your piece. It all has to do with rankings. The, the society has become just one kind of ranking or another. So every decision they make is according to rankings. You say uh, your students came to the University of Chicago because it was ranked highly. Yeah, so they almost all applied to all of the top 10, 15, 20 universities in the US. And, you know, every year, I guess in the spring, I forget when the new, when the US News and World Reports announces its changes in rankings. But students are really sensitive to this. Like when Chicago, like Chicago dropped from like three to six a couple years ago, and they were all talking about it before class. That's why, that's why, uh... Uh, I think Reed is probably the best liberal arts school in the country because it refuses to participate in this charade. Yeah, I mean, you know, it would it would be interesting to, you know, to look at these places that refuse to participate because I'm sure, you know, those students still come from the same kind of families and are shaped by the broader culture. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I do wonder how we could see them being maybe a little bit insulated from these pressures at such a university, which, yeah, also that they don't do grades at Reed, right? Yeah, and uh, I, we all know what they really do do at Reed. Um, uh, I, I really liked your piece. You 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 got this really interesting take on uh, Asian American applicants, who of course are uh, over over prepared. They have a, a different kind of crisis. And you say that a lot of Asian American students who got into the Chicago uh, wrote their admission essays, essays to demonstrate that they weren't like other Asians. So there's a sort of self-cultural hatred thing going on with Asian Americans, which we're seeing in the broader culture too today. Well, yeah, and I don't, I don't think that it necessarily expresses their own, you know, internal discomfort about being Asian, but they're, they correctly perceive that um, they are at a disadvantage. Um, it's more competitive for them to get in than uh, other racial and ethnic groups um, because of, you know, the informal quota system. And it's true that, you know, candidates are um, compared against other types, right? So um, there's a certain unspoken percentage of, you know, the university slots that are going to be given to uh, Asian Americans. Um, it's, you know, quite competitive to get from that pile to, um, you know, a, a seat at the university. And they, they all have a sense, at least the ones who got in, have a sense that they're supposed to use their admissions essays to signal that they're not the stereotypical, boring, uh, studies-oriented uh, Asian American. Uh, the, 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 the odd thing about this this convergence, this weird, unholy marriage of a meritocracy and a and wokeness, is it's really making all of us into racists of one kind or another. Yeah, indeed. Like uh, if if the sort of postmodern life skill that we're teaching with the university applications process is managing your image, you know, selling an image of yourself to the university, and then you'll do that to employers, you'll do that, you know, throughout your life. Um, that work of managing your image is entangled with, like, an awareness right. of racial stereotypes. I, I could imagine then Asian-American graduates of Harvard or, or Princeton 
or Chicago, going out on dates, and the first thing they would tell their prospective date, maybe they're white or black, they say, well, I'm not really like an Asian. Yeah, you know, I don't know how much, like, so in, in talking with my students, some of them, I think, genuinely internalize that sense of self, like that it, it, they, it came to be like an authentic self-expression that they're committed to not being quite like other, like what they imagine the Asian stereotype to be. And I think others used it sort of once instrumentally and cynically in the applications process. And then, you know, like there was this girl who, you know, she like many, many Asian students had grown up playing piano and violin. She knew that she couldn't talk about that for the admissions essay. So she talked about how she had rejected that and how she had found like, you know, right. passion, like other kinds of music. Yeah, this, but is, this, is, it's, this is great stuff. I, I think it's probably um, material for a comic campus novel. Uh, but in all seriousness, um, Blake, we had uh, Jill Filipovich on the show, who's become a, a kind of spokeswoman for the boomers for a younger generation. There's something in your piece which suggests to me something more serious, which is these kids are really miserable. I mean, Markovitz, Daniel Markovitz argued that, that the meritocracy is miserable, but you seem to be suggesting that this that this marrying of wokeness and the meritocracy is making these kids even more miserable, even more orthodox and uniform and unlike previous generations of university children. Yeah, I mean, if we think of meritocracy as um, individualizing, atomizing, hyper-competitive, then I think it's also natural that people caught up in a life that's like that are going to be looking for forms of community and connection and solidarity with others. And wokeness, you know, like this, this uh, hyper-partisan, um, polemical social justice language that's focused on group identity offers like an apparent solution to or, or supplement for this really soulless, uh, individualizing, meritocratic life. Um, but I think you know, ultimately it's, it's, it doesn't really challenge it and they fuse together in a, in a kind of sick and, and troubling way, right? So, um, you know, in the same way that I think social justice people are right, that there are terrible, terrible inequalities. Yeah, I mean, and let's be clear here. I mean, we're not making a, jo a joke of uh, social justice. Uh, as we speak, uh, the, uh, the Derek Chauvin trial of uh, the murder of George Floyd is going on. As we speak, there's unrest over Daunty uh, Wright's murder by another uh, police uh, woman. So this is a, these are serious issues. We're not, we're not suggesting that these things aren't real. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, the troubling thing is that the, the way that we have figured out to point to these real issues is through a kind of discourse that ultimately empowers people like this hedge fund manager's son, right? Who then can uh, justify his... Let's get him on the show, yeah. Although maybe he'd just put a sticker on over his mouth and say Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that I was particularly intrigued with, and, and, and obviously, um, Blake, you're a... You know, I said you, you teach history, but you're a young teacher of history, so you have a, a kind of a youthful eye on, on, on our, our new generation of leaders. And I was particularly struck by the respect this new generation has for their parents. I see it myself. I mean, my son in particular is particularly disrespectful of me, but I think he's unlike so many of his friends. What is it about, you, you write, what is it about these kids that make them um, so sympathetic to their parents' values and say that their parents 
are their best friends and surest allies? Is it because all these kids had helicopter parents, but you'd think they'd rebel and, and, and as soon as they leave home, want to never speak to their parents again? Yeah, you know, it, it surprised me um, when I first started teaching. And I think I, I said offhand at some point, um, maybe we were reading Freud and, you know, talking about stages of, of development across childhood. And I was like, you know, at some point in adolescence, you think your parents are total idiots and, you know, you think this for a couple of years and then you realize that, well, it's actually you who's been an idiot. Um, and and they, they were totally uh, aghast at this, right? So they, they had no such stage and had no desire for such a stage, right? Like I, I don't think the kind of adolescence as an existential crisis where you rebel against your parents' values and then figure out your own values that really loomed large in American and Western um, cultural imaginaries from maybe the 50s until quite recently, um, I think that is disappearing at least for kids in this um, elite world. Uh, now, some of it may be that these parents are overparenting or helicoptering, um, you know, totally unnecessarily, but I think they really have made a, a college admissions process that requires so many complicated inputs. Like you have to have done so much. Right. That's if you want to go to University of Chicago or Princeton or Harvard. If you want to go somewhere else, then it doesn't matter as much. Yeah. And it, it's, it's really disappointing to see how like my students, and I assume they think this because their parents think this, they really think that a very narrow range of lives are. Yeah, it's, it's astonishing. Um, and, uh, you know, we've heard this story, of course, before, uh, Blake. Uh, indeed, it's, it's something that University of Chicago has specialized in. Alan Bloom, a uh, guy who taught there wrote his famous book, The Closing of the American Mind. And, and, and your conclusion on this is, is kind of similar to Bloom's in the sense that uh, you suggesting that we're creating or educating, and use that word carefully, a class of leaders who are disconnected from any real solidarity to others and unable to think for themselves, combining the worst qualities of individualism and conformism. To what extent are you really just a, a 21st century uh, version of, of Bloom's warning about the closing of the American mind. I mean, you know, to be a 21st century Alan Bloom, you know, from your mouth to God's ears, I should be so lucky, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I think, I think uh, it, it would be worth going back and thinking more about his project and what's changed even at the University of Chicago since then. Because, uh, you know, the, the fact that Bloom's book was a bestseller is in a lot of ways very strange because he was really committed to an elitist project, even within the university, right? So, um, you know, Bloom and this kind of circle around Leo Strauss um, have at the University of Chicago a certain historical uh, presence, and that's now very attenuated, but, you know, um, they, there's still like an effort among these kind of Straussian people there to recruit the undergraduate students that they regard as, you know, the most brilliant and turn them into, you know, our future political and philosophical elite, you know, I think that's all a bit gross and has like weird overtones of grooming. And, um, mm -hmm. and I mean, now it, it's just a handful of really ancient um, people like in their, you know, uh, 80s who are, who are, you know, still associated with this, this thing. But, uh, I, I take that point. But, but what kind of leaders then are we, and I use this word carefully again, because 
this meritocracy as a form of manufacturing elites, what kind of new elite are we manufacturing here? Are they going to just leave college and forget all this and get jobs in Wall Street or Silicon Valley and become like the old elite? Well, yeah, I think, you know, there was a time when people thought that and maybe some people still think that. But, you know, if we're trying to explain how has there been this enormous cultural shift in the last five years where um, institutions that in theory have nothing to do with our cultural politics, like, um, you know, all the Fortune 500 companies and... Right. Uh, the polit- yeah, 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 yeah. The politicization how, of CEOs. Yeah. How, is, how has this happened? Well, you know, it's happened because they went to these kinds of schools. And it's not so much that they're really attached to these political ideas, I think, as that they have never really had the opportunity to develop the capacity for thinking for themselves and having their own kind of personal stances. Although uh, to be fair, I mean, pushing back a little bit, uh, Blake, a lot of people will be watching this and saying, well, maybe he has a point, but the critics of wokeness are just as bad. I mean, all you have to do is watch, watch Fox for about 10 seconds to realize that the unthinking orthodoxy on the right is even worse than the unthinking orthodoxy on the left. Well, yeah, so, right. I mean, plenty of the anti-woke people are are terrible, terrible, terrible. Um, And a lot of the traditional orthodoxies of the right have been what have produced wokeness, right? I mean, I think wokeness is a response to uh, neoliberal society in which, you know, there are fewer and fewer decent jobs that are available for normal people so, of course, parents and students and, you know, when they grow up, adults feel like they have to do everything they can to compete for these, like, top 10%. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. The, and we've had a lot of shows about the crisis of work and labor in, in the age of AI. And it's, this, this is all part of the same thing. Finally, uh, Blake, it's a really interesting conversation. Uh, a few years ago, sorry, uh, a few years ago, I had... Um, Kurt Anderson on the show, um, who uh, is a well-known writer, but he wrote a piece, I think is in 2011, um, on uh, on forgetfulness. Uh, he was on the show. I've actually had him on recently, more recently, talking about his Trump book. But in 2011, he wrote a really interesting piece, I think it was in Vanity Fair, about how nothing has changed in the last 20 years, is that apart, of course, from technology, and that we're still living in the same culture, the same writers, the same musical fashions, the same fashion fashions. Uh, how much do you think that, and, and I think Anderson's point is a very good one, how much is this technology-led society in which everything is, uh, nothing changes except technology, how much is this bound up in a, in a, in a general kind of, crisis of not only the elite, but of our culture. Um, and, and I think this is coming out also in terms of uh, uh, Biden. Um, I had Evan Osnos on the show, um, the, the biographer of, Bi- of Biden just before Christmas. Uh, and he presents Biden as this kind of Madame Tussauds figure, um, as someone who's Hairline has been reforested. His forehead appears calm. And Biden generally projects the glow of a grandfather just back from the gym. Um, What is happening in our culture that everything seems to be suffering from a form of amnesia, of forgetfulness, or of just pure theater? Yeah, so um, 
it, it definitely feels true that on the one hand, we have this um, really intensely polemical cultural theater going on all the time. Right. Um, like Literally all the time. And as we speak, demonst demonstrations, counter demonstrations, MSNBC versus Fox and so on, go on. Um, and, but then very little capacity for actual change. Um, you know, even to think about like police violence and riots, you know, if we're, if we're thinking back to like the early 90s with Rodney King and the LA riots, um, you know, these are not new issues. These are not unfamiliar problems. Uh, and how is it that they can become this kind of perpetual spectacle but not really, not somehow like constantly mobilized and talked about and, you know, occupying so much of our mental energy. Um, but we seem really unable to do anything politically about them. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how uh, much better things would be if we had like, you know, an elite of a different character or, um, you know, a, a better leadership class and how much of this is maybe sort of fundamental problems in American society and economy that, you know, might be. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah it, it's weird. And I'm speaking to you from Silicon Valley is um, we've lost a sense of the future. So, for example, Jonathan Alter, who's usually a reasonably intelligent commentator, the only way he can think about Biden is as an heir to FDR. All people can think about is FDR and Johnson in terms of Biden. No one's able to think about the future. Yeah, I, and I definitely have felt, especially in the last year, like the, the sense of uh, stasis and an inability to project anything positive into the future. Um, you know, I think a lot of the appeal of Biden was an appeal of a return to normalcy, just like the appeal of Trump had been an appeal to some, you know, yeah. earlier of American greatness. Um, and, you know, it, it could be that this lack of a capacity to articulate a positive ideal for the future and a program for getting there, um, you know, it could be to, to be able to do that, you have to have a bit of intellectual and moral autonomy. You know, you have to have kind of your own stance, mm. step back on what the collective is doing from its momentary demands and say, well, Okay, you know, everyone is arguing about this, but where I want us to be in five years and 10 years and 50 years is this other place. And here's how I propose we get there. Right. And Blake, uh, I think you would suggest that that requires uh, writers. And as you suggest in, in, in your excellent piece, this very provocative uh, essay, The Woke Meritocracy, the one thing that our new elite is not able to do is write. I mean, they can write, but they can't write thoughtfully. You've written very thoughtfully. I think there's something uh, of a book there. I hope there are some agents or publishers watching this who will turn your piece, The Woke Meritocracy, into a book. I know you're in Chicago in mid-April 2021 in these strange times, Blake, stuck inside like the rest of us. In addition to your excellent piece, what else should people be reading to make sense of our increasingly surreal world? Yeah, so I, I would suggest that for the admissions process, people read Mitchell Stevens' uh, 2007, Creating a Class. Um, he's a sociologist, and he spent uh, a year working on an admissions team at a small liberal arts college in New England. Uh, and he really breaks down the way that they make decisions. And since the book was published, like um, 14 years ago, it's been read by 
all kind of guidance counselors in high school and people who coach yeah. you. So it, there's a kind of feedback loop where what was supposed to be an expose of the process has then just been instrumentalized by uh, wealthy yeah. families. Maybe we should, rather than, you know, if we're going to do sociologists of class, maybe I mentioned Gramsci earlier, we should just go back to rereading Gramsci. Uh, and finally, uh, 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 one other piece. Yeah, so people uh, also look at uh, Matt Feeney's Little Platoons, um, which is thinking about how families are responding to these hyper-competitive pressures. So, you know, between uh, Stevens looking at what universities are doing and Feeney looking at um, how families are preparing their children and themselves to deal with this environment, I mean, you get a more complete picture of what's going on. Yeah, we'll have to get Feeney on the show. Do you know him? I, I don't know. We, we've interacted on Twitter, but I, I've never met him in person. It's interesting because these parents that get their kids into Stanford or Princeton or Harvard, whenever they tell you, they present it as if it's a, somehow an achievement of the family, a collective issue. So I'm always ashamed that, uh, that you know, I, I can't match them. And, and it's like playing a card game with these upper middle class parents uh, in San Francisco or New York. Anyway, wonderful conversation. Uh, um blake very intriguing lots of things to think about not well everyone will agree but i think you brought up some important points i have to have you back on the show when you've turned this into a book thank you so much thank you